becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger, stranger out of the is a dream that you to make real. Passing over the songs, glimmer, glimmer of the ship being seen. I wonder how you say shores of ignorance in Spanish. Ignorance. <laughs> Ignorancia. I think we're all ignorant. Ignorante. Um, <laughs> I know. Hey, cheers. Cheers. Yes. Woo. Where are you at? Where am I at? Where are you? <laughs> we're on a podcast it's called shorts appearance <laughs> thanks so good to be here guys uh, it might be because you're five two i don't know <laughs> short people have never been on the podcast <laughs> never <laughs> gonna represent i'm also gonna yeah. translate i don't know exactly where we're going tonight but i'm feeling good um, i feel allergied <laughs> Looney Tunes character. I know. I know. My eyes are like red. It's like it's 420 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Very exaggerated sneezes and blowing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Welcome to Austin in the springtime. Oh, totally. Well, I'll have to say that uh, I'm pretty reserved in most areas, except for when it comes to nose stuff, like blowing my nose or. You don't hold back at all uh, for the sake of uh, social uh-uh. situations. Yeah. Allison can attest like to I'm it. Just taking care <laughs> well, also sneezing just feels like I just want to like caca. <laughs> you have the most violent sneezes. Uh-huh. It's like there ought well, to be a something that happens to men once they have children. <laughs> Is that right? It's like when you get the dad sneeze. Uh-huh. Yeah, you do. <clears throat> Maybe because I, I get really admired my dad sneeze. He's like caca. <laughs> Why? Why admire that? It's like sound pollution. It's like a loud motorcycle going down the road. I'm like, I didn't ask for this. I think it might be like more uh, evolutionary and biological. <laughs> Yo, I, we cheers and I did not drink. Oh, oh. dang Man, I drink. Who's the shorty here now? <laughs> <laughs> what? Because shorties don't know how to drink. So, God. We're, we're gonna. We were gonna start with that. That statistic. Which one? The one uh, Lex Friedman posted this the other day. It said, uh, in the year 1800, oh, yeah. 43% of people died before the age of five. Today, that number is 4%. But that's an astounding statistic. Yeah. How do they know? How do they know that that is true? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Let's just assume it's true. I mean, we know it's some number high enough that it's staggering to us. But the idea that if you had 10 kids, four of them were going to die. I mean, just your idea about mortality would be so different just 200 years ago, 221 years ago. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it just makes me think about how much better things have gotten over the past couple of hundred years. And they've gotten so much better so quickly that I don't think we even know what's on the other side. Of it. Yeah. <clears throat> we don't know how bad it could be. Well, even just to go back to Allison's comment, it's like it kind of makes sense 43% of, of people die before the age of five. Like you think about, you know, the the progression of medicine just in general or childbirth mm-hmm. and how 
you know, we're able to do so much more like a C-section, like how many babies has, has that saved mm-hmm. just in, just in that right there, yeah. um, <clears throat> washing your hands before surgery, you know, that was a, I forget what year that was, that, that was a, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous things like that, that has changed just in that last, you know, yeah. couple hundred years. That's really fascinating to me because if you look at like the rates of <clears throat> disease, um, that used to kill off a lot of people mm-hmm. and you, we generally think, Oh, that doesn't happen anymore because of vaccines. Yeah. But if you look at those rates, they started plummeting before the vaccines came out and didn't change the tra- trajectory after the vaccines. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vaccines help, but it had much more to do with changes in simple things like hygiene mm-hmm. that started protecting us from the things that used to kill us. Yeah. You know, we didn't know why, because we didn't know the importance of being clean. Mm-hmm. You know, in some sense, people didn't have that luxury. Yeah, just sewage in general, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's like being able to have, like, your sewage <laughs> being taken away from the city or into a, a facility that can actually yeah. handle and take care of it. Just poop and pee in a pan and just throw it out. Gross. Not to mention, we used to use animals to get around everywhere, and they were pooping everywhere. And, uh-huh. You know, that we don't even think about hygiene anymore. We just take it for granted. But that simple thing used to kill tons of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting thing to think about how much how much of things improved and and I want to just make a a short comment about um, something that I've been thinking about in those terms which is this insane idea that we have that we established in this country of innocent until proven guilty Hmm. and I think that falls into a category of something we don't even really think take time to think about how insane of an an idea that is what a miracle of of an idea that is Mm -hmm. Um, you know obviously we're on the tail end of the the Derek Chauvin trial here and that's kind of why I'm thinking about it but I think it falls in the same bucket same category you know we we figured out hygiene and all of a sudden we're not losing 43% of our kids um, and we figured out this concept of innocent until proven guilty and we have a, a strong concept of justice now. Um, and I just think that's really incredible. And I, I wanted to talk about it because we need to remind ourselves of how important that is to simple ideas of liberty and freedom. Mm. Um, you know, and I guess I'm a bit worried that forget, our culture is forgetting about that and it's valuing other things over that. Mm-hmm. For example, the conviction of Derek Chauvin over the simple premise of anyone in this country accused of crime is treated by the law as innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And that's an incredible, an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. It really is. I think, <clears throat> I think it's hard to like, uh, uh, again, we're not speaking to the, uh, what the actual verdict was. I think it's just more of like some of the, more of the talk around what was happening in the courtroom. Um, and that was, it was interesting. I, I, I heard some people say we don't even need to have a court case. It's just obvious. <clears throat> now, whether that was true or not, that's not my, that's not my, that's not what I'm contending with. But just the fact that like, no, we need to go through the motions and let the system work. This person is innocent until proven guilty. Like it doesn't matter if you're talking about, uh, I said Ted Mason, 
what's his name? The serial killer. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Marilyn Manson? Marilyn Manson. <laughs> oh, dude, totally lost that one. Uh, yeah, but but that person should like you know it's like they should have a trial and before its peers and um, you know and be innocent before until proven guilty. I think it's just it's so, so crucial that and to not hold up that standard. I think is really um, well. I mean, I think the standard detrimental. Is, is being held up by the our justice system. Mm-hmm. But I think sort of the cultural consciousness, like back to the Zeitgeist conversation that we mm. had a couple episodes ago, yeah. that's where that concept has been lost. I mean, there was a pretty high profile person. This was before the, um, um, the verdict tweeted something like, uh, the defense began its closing remarks by defining reasonable doubt and not by explaining why Derek Chauvin is innocent. That tells you everything you need to know. Mm. And, you know, a bunch of people responded to it this way, but this is when I started thinking about this crazy idea of innocent until proven guilty. Like, they didn't start by explaining why someone, why you're innocent. That's the thing that innocent, the presumption of innocence is, is primary. Mm-hmm. You don't have to explain why you're innocent. No one in this country has to explain why they're innocent. It's, it's upon you to explain why I'm guilty. Mm-hmm. and prove that beyond a reasonable doubt such that a jury of my peers will agree with you. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it reminded me of... Oh, who said it? It's, um, I don't remember, uh, but something like, it, it, it is better that a thousand guilty men walk free than one innocent man be wrongly convicted. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty powerful statement. I don't know... You know, I struggle to agree with it a little bit. But the idea that it establishes in this country, which is that it's more important to to protect an individual's sort of sacred innocence mm-hmm. than it is than it is to convict people who are guilty. Yeah, you know, all of this is somewhat backward to our intuition, mm-hmm. and I think that in a previous sort of state of humanity, um, it was much the other way. It was that you are guilty if we say you're guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's clear to all of us that you're guilty, then you're guilty. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of innocent people that died under those ideas. Well, which trials, uh, totally. you know, um, the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just go back to, <clears throat> you know. Any totalitarian government. Yeah. Soviet Russia, now it's China. Mm-hmm. Like we determine your innocence or your guilt. And we are the, we are the one who does that. <laughs> That's just, yeah. It's yeah, so hard because, like, it's like even just even just approaching it because, like, like I kind of hate even bringing this the the Chauvin case, Chauvin case or whatever Chauvin. I don't know. I know. I just I just got tongue tied on it. Uh, there's like so much tied into it, so much emotion, and uh, you know, even just the. Uh, he, you know, he's a racist or, or whatever it might be, you know, it, it's almost hard to even get at some of these principles because of, and by using this case, I think that I almost think it's, it's almost, uh, can get clouded because it's so emotional. Right. Well, but that's, I think that's what I'm trying to bring up that I, I just want to celebrate for a minute and remind mm-hmm. us to remember mm-hmm. how 
how good these principles are. Yeah, totally. And they exist to keep us sane, or at least on the best path toward justice that we can figure out how to how to walk down, mm-hmm. especially when emotions are high. Yeah, that's true. Especially when we all think we know mm-hmm. what's true. You know, we need these principles, especially then. Yeah. Otherwise, we will revert to something like mob justice or, or mob rule. Mm-hmm. And we all know that a mob doesn't think clearly. A mob doesn't think at all. Yeah. You know, you become sort of like the flock of birds that just everyone goes the same direction and the direction is somewhat arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and when you're in the mob, you think it makes perfect sense, but you look at it from the outside and all you see is chaos. Well, even like the one, one <laughs> thing I saw where these people weren't letting this semi go through you know, in Minneapolis and they're jumping on it. It's like, who's this guy? You don't even know who this person is, but you're, you're jumping on the semi as if this person has committed some sort of injustice. And hold on. Okay. My, my channel wasn't recording that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we caught it through. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe through the other mics. We'll see. Okay. Is it recording now? Yeah, oh. it's recording now. Okay. So the semi, we were trying to censor you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a damn cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't. No, myself. I mean, like everyone, everyone kind of attacked the semi, and it was just like doing its thing, going through Minneapolis, you know. And it's like, well, why are you jumping on this semi? Are they representing something that is, you know, uh, against what you think? Mm-hmm. It's like you have no idea. It's like it's just a mob sort of. Yeah here's this thing. Let's take our anger out on it. And right. It just didn't make any sense. Yeah. What were you saying? <laughs> I was going to say something. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think I'm in a way I'm relating the concept of innocent until proven guilty. Um, I feel like that's actually more true to human nature because I've, it seems like the instinctual way of parents. Like when you have a child, they make a lot of mistakes. And you don't point out, you don't punish. Hmm. Like they, they experience the natural consequences of making a mistake. And for the most part, you just let them do that. And then when there's... So you you step in to it's like there's a difference, you know, when your when your kid did something out of like pure anger or you know, something that they clearly knew was wrong versus like just mistakes. I don't know if that relates all the way, but it feels it feels um yeah, but I think that you <clears throat> you hold a different standard toward children who aren't your own. So, for instance, if you're on a plane with your kid, you're going to feel much differently about your kid's behavior than you are if you're on a plane with your husband going on vacation and someone else has their kid. Mm-hmm. Right, which is why the system needs to treat everyone like its own kid. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> 
That's a great example because like if you're like you're away from your kids and uh there's a crying baby next to you, even though you have a crying baby at home, you're like, What is going on here? Yeah. Obviously you have a little bit more heart because you have experienced this. But you definitely still have that sort of feeling like I'm on vacation, you know, where this these, these poor couple is just sort of like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My kid's like yeah. freaking out right now. Well, I think it, to your point, Allison, is that it is intuitive within your family unit. It's, it's intuitive within that scope. It, mm. it is not intuitive in a, in a larger construct. You know, once you get into different communities, different families, um, different geographies, the human nature tends to start to be tribal. Mm. And that's where you need to enforce something like innocence and innocent until proven guilty. That's why we need that principle laid out in law, because that's not the way you're going to behave intuitively. Mm-hmm. The way you're going to behave intuitively is, I'm sorry, you killed my son. You're guilty. Done. Like you infringed into my close, you know, knit unit. Um, <clears throat> and actually, I think that this this ties nicely into something else that I wanted to talk about, which is the idea of uh, patriotism. Hmm. Like, for a society to function, you have to extrapolate the ideals and principles of the family unit out into the larger category of community, and then sort of in our case, state and country that we have to extract those principles and put them into law and try to basically have some idea of familial ownership, just like you would have ownership over your house. You also need to have some sort of ownership over your city such that you, you feel like it's yours. Mm Mm-hmm. And you also need to have that feeling for your country. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the idea of patriotism comes in. It's like, I love my country because it's mine. You know, mm-hmm. it's because it's where I live. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's been lost. And some of, and that's why I think we're forgetting about some of these principles because we're not behaving as though, <clears throat> as though that's true anymore. It's just a, it kind of makes me think of like when Jesus talks about like love your neighbor as yourself, <clears throat> and a lot of that like extends to like you, you know yourself, and then your kids and your extended family. It's like, but as you get further and further out, it's harder to love your enemy as or, oh shoot to love yourself as <clears throat> love others as you, as you love yourself. You know, um. So I think that's as part of like even extrapolating extrapolating that into law that idea, mm-hmm. and to be able to see somebody and to treat other people as a closer family unit where you would extend grace to your kids, you know, and to those that are outside your circle. But as you get further and further out, it's harder to do that. I think that's something that's very valuable. Yeah, <clears throat> oh, and that makes perfect sense. The further out you get, further removed, it's harder and harder to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you know pluck someone from the other side of the globe and tell me to treat them like my family. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what that means. I know nothing of this person and and who they are and what their culture is like or what their, you know, it's like we share a common humanity that we can relate to, Mm -hmm. but there's something about kinship that is required to extend 
the intuitive, um, maybe I'll say the intuitive grace that we have towards our children naturally or our family naturally out to, well, I, w- I guess I would say to strangers. Mm-hmm. So we need some idea of what constitutes a stranger. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a sense, <clears throat> a random person from the other side of the globe is a stranger in a much stronger sense than any given American. You know, any given American citizen isn't a stranger to me mm-hmm. in the same way. Because not only do we share common humanity, but we share common country. We share common foundational principles. Yeah. And so that that does guide to an extent like how I how I relate to you. Or it should, I think. Yeah. I wonder because like you do hear this like idea of like I'm a citizen of the world. Like that is uh, that is somewhat coming more and more common. It's like it's not necessarily tied to a geographic or a nationality or you know or a nation or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really hard to know because like, what does it mean to be a citizen of the world? Well, it doesn't really mean anything different than I'm a human. To me, I mean, and I think in the worst interpretation, <coughs> it can be. It can be an excuse to have no responsibility at all. Oh, interesting. Like, oh, I care about the whole world. Hmm. Okay. And what is your... To what extent do you take responsibility for the whole world? Hmm. Hmm. The responsibility part, that's kind of key. Like, well... Do you take take responsibility for what's happening in Europe? Or what's happening in China? Well, you could, Mm -hmm. yeah. But do you take more or less responsibility for that than you do for what's happening in your own home? Right. Less. Or city, yeah. Yeah, and then then there are gradations between that. Mm -hmm. It's like, clearly I have the most responsibility over my own house. Right. You know, and then I have more responsibility over my own city than I do over Hong Kong. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I have more responsibility over my own state than I do over, you know, Britain. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I feel like that the world citizenship idea dilutes our personal responsibility for where we live now, mm. um, for, for my community, for my city. Because, in okay, I mean... To the extent that we have this global awareness, which has never existed mm-hmm. until now, mm-hmm. you know, well, okay, so now I, it is possible for me, okay, I'm going to give my money to Indonesia, I'm going to give my money to the earthquake here, That, okay, or if I had not, if I didn't have the extent of awareness of all that, well... If I wanted to solve a problem, I would have to solve the problems that I see in my daily life. Those are the only available problems to you. Mm-hmm. You know, like what can I take responsibility for that? And that's real f- fucking hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Peter Peterson's the one who talks about this a ton, right? Like, mm-hmm. and that's much. It's much easier to sort of quote unquote take responsibility for 
you know, people suffering the consequences of some earthquake in another country than it is to take responsibility for the simple task of not simple. It's a much more complicated task in a lot of ways right. of getting your house in order or your right. family in order or your love life in order. Perhaps life, your city. I mean, for example, like today was the, the vote on the, the ban, the camping ban. I wanted to vote. I was, saw a sign about it this morning. I was like, oh, I've got to make sure I do that. And I didn't do it. Hmm. But that actually matters to me because yeah. I'm actually affected by it on a weekly basis. Right. I have, I do feel a sense of responsibility. And then I like failed to do that. Yeah. Hmm. I can't even vote <laughs> yeah. for a thing that actually affects me in my own city. Mm-hmm. But I could, oh, my friend is raising money for some people over here. Let me give some dollars. Okay, I did something. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I just dilute it. But that's just like a dilution of the potency of my own actions in my own life. Hmm. That's so interesting. So there's this passage in um, this book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, uh, that I've been thinking a lot about. I, I read it to Michael earlier, but he's talking about how when when the concept of patriotism decays <clears throat> in a society, you can no longer convince people to do something like, for instance, go to war for love of their country. So you have to appeal to something more basic like um, ideas of justice, humanity, civilization. Mm-hmm. You have to appeal to those things in order to get that person. Once the, once the person will no longer sweat or bleed for their own country, you have to appeal to some other ideal. And he says that's actually a step down, not a step up, which I think is counterintuitive. Um, but I think the way that you're describing that helps make sense of it to me. It's much easier to make sort of broad statements about things. And that's what terms like humanity, justice, civilization, that's what they are. It's much harder to make very specific statements like, I'm going to go vote on this thing that matters to me. That's much, that's harder. Right. Um, and, and I'm going to feel a sense of, I'll probably carry some sense of guilt because either way a decision will be made. And mm-hmm. if it's not according to what I feel like is best for the city, then I'm going to feel a little bit of guilt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Cause your like, voice matters. <clears throat> because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't take the opportunity to do what I could do. Yeah. Um, and then what, what do I do with that guilt? Mm-hmm. That's going to be a drain on me energetically and on some level and blah, blah. So just so many levels of that. Um, that I feel unfortunate and and so how I'm, I'm trying to imagine like how do I recapture this sense of like truly loving my country hmm. like how do we engender that um, I, well, I think, sense of identity <clears throat> I think that you need to you need to connect with some idea of that it is our country which I think is is somewhat difficult because I think that the 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 modern rhetoric, the most popular narrative right now, is 
trying to convince us that that's not true, that it isn't our country. And if you think it's your country, then you're being selfish. Where it's, I think, no, it's more like, it's your country just like it's your home. My home is my home. This is where I live. Mm. That's what makes it mine, is I live here. And if you try to tell me that I'm being selfish for saying that it's my home, then there's something amiss here. And clearly, like, the... the <clears throat> The concept at scale is different from <clears throat> home to country. But if there isn't some sense of this is our country, this is where we live, and that is important, then I think a lot of other things start to break down. Right. I mean, he makes, uh, C.S. Lewis in that passage makes reference to sort of the idea that if a burglar comes into my house, <clears throat> like, I'm going to defend it. And it's not because I'm, it's what's just, it's because it's my house. You know, if I didn't defend my house for justice, I defended my house because it's my house. And, you know, obviously that is the just thing. But if I start going around just defending houses for the sake of justice writ large, in his words, he says, you become insufferable. You know, it's like, you imagine you got some neighbor who's like constantly patrolling the streets and like trying to defend everybody's houses. You'd be like, Dan, go home. Like, get out of my business. You know, this is my house. You don't need to do this. You know, it's like, it's great that you're all for justice and everything. But um, yeah, I think there's something really important about the idea that you defend what's yours. Mm -hmm. You protect what's yours. Mm -hmm. And if the idea is that, no, we protect justice and justice alone, well, where does that stop? It's, it's so broad as to, as to escape definition. Justice where? Justice when? You know, there's too much world. There's too many things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you cast the vision that large, you are then presented with so many things to do that you're crippled. You can't do anything. You can't ever attack that problem. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how do you reinstill love of country? <clears throat> well, I definitely, th- I think there's this part, because I think that's sometimes too big. Um, we've lost our sense of like belonging, you know, again, it's like when you're born, you have a sense of belonging. That's, you know, with a mother and a father, like there's, that's your first sense of belonging, you know? And, and sometimes that is, is even, I don't know the word is diluted or, um, broken and that it might be just with a mother or even like a step parent or not a step parent, uh, uh, adopted parents. Mm-hmm. So there's something that, but that's your first sense of belonging. And then, so that's kind of like your, it's almost like your base unit. And then as you start to grow, it's like you start to have this sense of belonging with your siblings, you know, if, if there's more kids mm-hmm. and beyond that is sort of maybe your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, or your, your preschool or whatever it might be, you start developing friends. It's like your sense of belonging starts to grow, but you still have, 
I feel like there's a sort of intention that you're, that you're beginning a sense of belonging is in your family unit. And it's like, but if you start losing your sense of belonging, it's like you're trying to find it in things that might be more temporal. Um, and I think this is more of a, of a modern, um, a modern failure in the sense of belonging because the familiar unit is such, is so much more, uh, broken down and disintegrated across, you know, whether it be space, time or whatever it might be. Um, but you can still find it, I think outside of that familial aspect, but <coughs> so I, I don't know. Again, I think if you start, if you try to find that connection that too broadly without having more of a central connection of people that you're actually in relationship with, um, accountability or responsibility, you know, it's that you're responsible for somebody else, then it's, it's, it can, I feel like it can be easily, you can be easily untethered from reality because you don't have those checks and balances. Like even like, I think of like our cat, you know, it didn't have a mother. And so it's kind of a little bit uh, unruly, <laughs> but the mother, what it did was it would pop, you know, mother kittens would pop the little kitten on the, on the face and like say, Hey, that's not okay. Hmm. So there's a certain, like you grow up knowing there's certain boundaries that you have and that, you know, this is okay. And this is not okay. So it happens in the animal kingdom all the way up to us where you kind of learn that there are certain boundaries. And if you don't have that, it's like you, you kind of sometimes have to learn the hard way like, Hey, there's boundaries and you're crossing those boundaries, which our cat does all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that still doesn't really answer the question though, about how do you instill a love of country? Something that comes to mind for me with that is interesting. Interestingly enough, um, an example from our kids school uh-huh. So their elementary school, every Friday, they had a school assembly. So all the kids, Friday morning, piled up into the gym. The principal gave a little talk. They did announcements, awards. But it was this assembly. And I didn't appreciate that ritual until they moved to this other school that did not have that. And in these really subtle ways, I recognized that the kids didn't really have a sense of belonging to their new school. Oh, interesting. <clears throat> and I, I, I think one of the big, large contributing factors to that is that the school was never assembled. Mm-hmm. It was never, they never experienced valor as one whole community mm-hmm. together which is a, a very regular experience they had at Matthew. So there was this sense of identity mm-hmm. that developed in the assembly. Um, oh, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. Because I remember when we would have pep rallies before football games, like mm-hmm. in middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Those were always so fun. Yeah. You get everybody in the same place at once, and there is something to the effect of like just looking around and seeing, oh, everyone's here. Yeah. You know, and they're sitting in their cliques and they're doing their things and everybody's different, but seeing it yeah. mm-hmm. is powerful and it changes. It, 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 it engenders some sort of affection. Right. You know, in, in, in those scenarios, you call it more like school pride. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But I think really what that is is affection. And, a, and belonging. Like, these are my people. Oh, ownership. Lewis describes uh, affection in such a wonderful way. I have the book right here. I'm going to read it to you. Um, he says, uh, Affection teaches us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate the people who happen to be there. Hmm. Hmm. Made for us, thank God, no. They are themselves odder than you could have believed and worth far more than we guessed. Hmm. I love that. Like, first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at. Than to be affectionate toward. Mm. Process of attachment. Yeah. And I think that happens in <clears throat> yeah, just being around people. Right. Right. It Well, and I think one of the things that well, so when I was growing up, I was raised that, you know, if the president is giving an address, it's like you sit down and you listen to that. Mm doesn't matter who the president is. doesn't matter who you think of it. You know, it's like there's a respect for that office. Yeah, Democrat or Republican yeah. or whatever it is. Because that is the person who can, the only person who can speak to the whole country. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that seems very different now. It, well, because it's no longer true. I mean, that isn't the person who can speak to the whole country. Anyone can speak to the whole country now. Mm. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. <clears throat> so it's more about judging who's worth the reach, you mm-hmm. know. But I think that, that engendered love of country, just the idea that I'm sitting down listening to the president speak to the whole country. There's that, it's like not everybody, I can't look around the gym and see the faces of everybody, but there's a sense of like everybody is sitting here listening to this and this right. is important. We don't really have that anymore. Right, right. You know, maybe, th- maybe we don't get that back either. Maybe not. I mean, I had that as I was thinking what helped me identify with being American. Really, it was 4th of July. Like 4th of July, like the whole city came out and we're all like sitting around watching fireworks because yeah. we're American. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> Like, we're American, and we're going to, like, see some awesome fireworks. Um, Or, like, the fun parade. But we don't, like, our kids don't do that. Our kids have nothing Mm -hmm. of that. Um, So I have no idea if our kids identify as American. And I somewhat fear the, you know, the global... I mean, I think Americans globally are kind of unpopular. And what do you mean by that? Um, well, I think most people. I mean, here's my ignorance. Like, I don't actually know what other countries think about Americans, but my assumption is that they think we're. Dumb. Well, I, I think they probably think we've lost our minds. I mean, I think that the majority of people in the rest of the world would prefer to be here over anywhere else. In in a in a sense, 
but I'm not sure if that's going to remain true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you look at the freest country that has ever existed, the most prosperous, most powerful country who's ever, that's ever existed, a country built. Well, so it's interesting. You were, I think this is fascinating talking about, um, like belonging, you belong first to your parents and then to your family and then to your neighborhood and then maybe to your school and then maybe to your city. It's like, and that is the principle that America is built on is the sovereignty of the individual. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a, an idea born here, Yeah, you know, and that's something to be envied because, well, that's the ultimate freedom. Um, but I think that, I think that people think we're dumb, maybe, like you <laughs> said, because w the, the popular narrative in America now is to vilify that idea mm. and to vilify all of the principles that create and uphold that idea and say, no, this is all racist. This is all terrible. America's rotten. The system needs to be torn down. And you even hear the president of the United States and the vice president saying these things. That's terrifying. And I, I could imagine if I lived somewhere else in the world and looked at America and said, yeah, okay, look at the most powerful country in the world, the freest country in the world, and even its own leaders are saying that it's horrible. Mm -hmm. What does self-hate do to a nation? I worry it will destroy it. Makes me think of that couple in Belgium. Oh, yeah. Remember? <clears throat> yeah. We met this young couple and... They're just friends, but yeah. Oh. Yeah. Look <laughs> no, at you remembering the relationship details. Uh, but they were they were curious about us because we had I was pregnant with my fourth at that mm -hmm. time. We were talking about family. And they essentially had come to the conclusion that they did not want to have kids and not want to have make family because of the atrocities that their country had perpetrated in the Congo. Hmm. They had so they were carrying so much shame and self-hate. Hmm. That's right. Over the historic actions of their country hmm. that they no longer felt like it was the right thing to do for them to make more Belgians. Hmm. Wow. And that broke my heart. Yeah. And I don't remember how we responded, but I was probably very convincing <laughs> about how wrong that was. <laughs> you know, but, but the self-hate, <coughs> I mean, that seems to point toward, like, self-annihilation. Hmm. I mean, it makes sense if you hate yourself, why would you want to... Reproduce. Reproduce. I don't think that we think consciously this way much anymore. But the idea of reproduction is sort of the old, it's like, you know, I sort of care about myself today. I care about myself tomorrow. I kind of have some idea of caring about myself next year. But the idea of propagation is like caring, caring for myself past my death in a mm -hmm. certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we propagate. Mm -hmm. It's why we breed because we have some deep biological need not to die, not to you know, and to, to leave behind offspring is 
to leave behind a part of ourselves. I think it's hard to see into the future without reproducing because it, 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 again, I think people are capable of it, but whenever you produce something that will live technically beyond your lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, it causes you to think beyond yourself and the time frame that you will exist. Yeah. Especially once you have a grandchild, which we haven't experienced yet, you know, it's like, but you start thinking like, I love this thing and it will for sure live beyond my lifespan. And so I think that that sort of like anti-family not wanting to reproduce idea really gives us a narrow perspective of Mm. projecting into the future, using our imaginations to think about what is beyond not only my lifetime, but also my kid's lifetime, because there's this thing I'm holding that's beautiful and I want it to have a better world, you know? Yeah. Whereas if you hate yourself, like you can hate yourself enough to want to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's like some lesser version of that is that I hate myself enough that I don't want to put someone else like me into the world. Mm -hmm. And then there, maybe there's some other version of that, which is like, I hate my environment so much that I don't want to live. And that could be your home, your family could be your town, your country, Mm -hmm. the world in general, you know, that could be enough to induce suicidal thoughts Mm -hmm. seen a certain way. And maybe the, the lesser version of that is I can withstand it, but there's no way in hell that I'm going to create someone else to withstand it. Yeah. Which is very nihilistic. Whenever you think about like, you know, we have, you know, five kids, you have three kids. It's like, it's like what I hope for the future is that our kids will have an impact, a positive impact packed into the future. And that excites me about family. It's like I want I want to see them actualize and realize something that is beautiful and to call into the world, into existence, something that is more than what they than what there was before, you know? Well, and it's I think it's why it's important that we started on that statistic. Hmm. Like yeah, you might hate yourself, you might hate your environment, you might even hate this country. Mm-hmm. but look at how much better things are than mm. they used to be. Not that long ago. Yeah. How much better could they be in another 200 years? Mm-hmm. Especially if you start seeing it in that light, especially if you start seeing yourself and your community and your country in that light and then bringing your children into it and showing them that how much better, mm-hmm. you know, you want to talk about injustice injustice Well, whatever the injustice is that was inflicted upon George Floyd, I would argue that a 43% chance of dying before the age of five is a greater injustice. Mm. And it's an, an injustice that they couldn't do anything about. That's an injustice that you can only go to God or Satan or whoever, some higher power mm-hmm. to argue with, you know, mm. it's like, at least we had Derek Chauvin to argue with, to jot, to blame, mm-hmm. you know, but that we used to live in a world where the, the greatest injustices, there was nothing you could do about it. So things are wildly better and how much better could they be? 
that's just a, I think it's such an important shift to make and say, yeah, things aren't perfect. Things are really bad in a lot of ways. But let's celebrate and look at how much better they are than they used to be mm-hmm. and not concentrate so much on how bad they are, but our capacity to change them because our, our capacity to change them is clearly massive. And it's not by, I don't think that you're going to affect change or love of country or family or your home, what you own, all of that by concentrating what's bad about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't, if you're unhappy with your house or your condo or your apartment or your studio or RV or whatever it is, you know, like you have the smallest unit of sort of like ownership that you have is the place that you sleep. And to whatever degree that place is negative, you don't improve it by constantly thinking and talking about what's negative about it. It's like you start by saying, you know what? I love this place enough to change the negative parts. Hmm. You have to engender that affection first to say, I love this place. So I will deal with the negative parts. Mm -hmm. And what if we took that attitude toward ourselves? Mm. I love living inside of me enough. I I will deal with Hmm. the unpleasant parts. Yeah. Rather than erase myself or whatever. Or just sit and think about how much I dislike the things that I dislike about myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, this might take the conversation to a whole different place, but... I really think, I mean, that higher, that higher being that the people in the 1800s could only appeal to, that's still, that's still real. Mm -hmm. And belonging to that kingdom and the values that are lived, identifying, identifying in that kingdom, I feel like it's a whole different thing than patriotism. And you know, when you said you could pluck someone from whatever country, I'm like, well, if that person knows the God that I know, I'm going to feel like a sister to them. Well, that's back to the idea of shared ownership. In what way? Well, I don't think there's any difference between that and patriotism. I mean, there is a difference, but I think it's the same concept. It's like what you're saying is that you are co-owners of the kingdom of heaven, as it were. Yeah. Just like I would say, we are all co-owners of Austin. And thus, we'll feel guilty by not lending our voice to issues that affect us. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the cost of ownership. Right. And so you can feel that within, within that context. And I think that context can be scaled 
just like it could be scaled from your family to your city to your country, it can also be scaled into <clears throat> what could be described as sort of the unknown. The unknown as in God? Yes. Yeah, but, but it can't be known. <laughs> Which is, and I think this is why, as I'm in this conversation working this out, I think this is why... I don't, I have not insisted on um, creating or have not prioritized creating a sense of belonging to America for my own kids. I would rather them recognize their belonging to the kingdom of heaven because that has nothing to do with geography. Mm -hmm. They can be home, quote unquote, anywhere if their true sense of belonging is is found in God and in the kingdom. And I would rather them have that bef- over feeling American. Hmm. But I do also want them to recognize that I feel like this guy that has designed their life has put them in America for a reason. Mm-hmm. Put them in Texas for a reason. You're Texan. And that's another interesting part of the conversation. Like I feel <laughs> I feel way more identified as a Texan than, <laughs> than I do as an American. Uh, well, that's actually a pretty, I think, a pretty important part of America. Is that it's for the best. <laughs> 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 well, it's that the states are more important than the federal mm-hmm. union. Yeah. Yeah. United States, not Mm-hmm. United. <laughs> I feel right. more Texan than Austinite, but I feel more Austinite than Huntsvillian. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and it, that reminds me, it's like you want your kids to feel at home anywhere, but they will always feel most at home in your home. And that's important. Mm-hmm. They will always feel most at home, like in whatever extensions of that there are. So it's like your home. Even if it's the one you have now or the one you, you know, move to next. But the extension of that will always be Austin and the extension of that will always be Texas. And they might feel perfectly comfortable moving to Thailand and have some feeling of a sense of home that's rooted in something transcendent. But when they come home, you know, that word has meaning. It's like they come home. That's going to mean something to them. Yeah, but I th- I think that sense of home and belonging, the felt sense of the goodness of that is very dependent on the nature of the relationship between the parents and the kid. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could your home could be negative. Like people have homes that are negative, and they don't want to go home. Still home though. I mean, these, th- these concepts are, I think, very powerful. It's why we keep referring to things that way. Yeah. You know, there's, there are people who say, I will never go home. But why do they say that? Why do they say home then? If they don't want to be there. Yeah, there's definitely like a, a sense of unresolvedness 
in a relationship, <clears throat> especially like whenever you have that break of family, like, and they're, well, the, I mean, this, I feel, I feel kind of like sensitive about this because I feel like part of my process over the last year and something I'm actively trying to establish within myself is that that sense of home is in me. I don't lose home when my parents die. Mm-hmm. I, I lose nothing of of my. I lose a relationship. Like yes, there is loss, but the wholeness of my being has to be. I have to be at home in me. At that feels like the only way to truly live a full life. What I, I just it, the way you said it just now was it was really interesting because it's like you almost have to allow to develop complexity. Because there's a sort of sense like you do have home that is future oriented, present and past oriented. You know, it's like your parents are part of your past and and also your present. And at some point, well, you know, technically or whatever will not be a part of your future. But your kids are a part of your present, you know, past and present. And it's like your grandkids. But then at some point you kind of like it you're kind of building this complex um, relational (laughs) complex around you that, that has, uh, Mm. I think I lost that, but it has a lot of different elements that you have to continue to, to grow and nurture. So it's like, it, it, it's like as if you are an individual, but you are also part of a whole. And it's like, there's that tension between the two. It's like, Mm. it's like, yes, you should be whole in and of yourself. But at the same time, you are not whole in and of yourself without community and other people around you. So, so you will never be whole if you are only an individual, you know, it's like, you have to be, you can only be whole if you're also part of a community mm. and, and, and again, I think there's a sort of evolutionary aspect to this and how we've kind of gotten to our, our knowledge and understanding of God is sort of this idea of something that is completely whole that holds community and individuality together at the same time where like in a lot of, you know, Greek mythology and, Wiccan and bunch of other, it's like it's all conflicting and it's like a it's like a it's like a family that's not really <laughs> it's not really in, in some sort of congruence you know where like in the in the monotheistic religions like you have this sort of holistic oneness of community and individuality that works together you know um, yeah I, I, I want to riff on what you just said mm-hmm. in support of what you said Allison about wholeness in yourself Mm. um and maybe this is a maybe we'll try to wrap it up here Mm -hmm. but like what is the concept of of home you know i can say we're in my home right now Mm -hmm. but home for me in another sense is the house i grew up in you know when i go see my parents i still say i'm going home Mm mm-hmm 
but you can also zoom out and say, well, my home is Austin or my home is Texas or my home is the United States. Or you can go Carl Sagan and say, <laughs> my home is the pale blue dot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. So what does it mean to zoom all the way in then? You know, mm-hmm. you go further out of the pale blue dot and yeah. say the Milky Way or whatever, <laughs> you know, but to zoom back in, you, you zoom back in through this planet, this continent, this country, this state, this city, this neighborhood, mm-hmm. this particular house filled with these particular people, ultimately you get to whoever it is that you are, your body, who you are. I live in this skin sack. <laughs> this it's is my home. <laughs> you know, I have this spirit. I have this brain. This is my home. And to feel fully at home there, I think, is where you must start in order to start defining home in the other direction. So I think I, I agree with you. And then throw into the mix when Jesus says that he and the Father come to us and make, our home, make their home in me, hmm. in you, in us. So the home of me actually becomes God, mm-hmm. the embodied, like he lives in me. I, I am his home. Mm-hmm. You are his home. And is this a place that I want to be? Mm-hmm. Do I want to come home to me? And that's the question I'm trying to answer. Yeah. And to the extent that you don't, because I think that, we all answer that in the negative in some way. Let us not forget that the way to change that is to start by reminding ourselves that it is something worth changing. And you can only do that by reminding yourself what's good about it. What do you love about your home that makes it worth changing? Or to begin with, the belief that it's lovable without changing a thing. To start there. Yeah. That feels that feels huge. Well, I love you too. You are a part of my home. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm thankful for it. (laughs) Love being here. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Welcome to the shores. We're leaving. (laughs) (laughs) You can stay if you want. You can stay if you want. We'll probably always be here, but you can always go back. (laughs) 